good, isn't it? Wednesday night, by the way, good morning, everyone. Merry Christmas. Outside of this group, have any of you told anyone today already Merry Christmas? Yeah, well, good. I want to challenge you to tell everybody you encounter Merry Christmas. And uh, even Starbucks, go in there and say Merry Christmas to everybody. Someone said, you still support them? I said, yeah, there's a lot of ministry there. So was they took something off their the red cup or whatever? What? They doctored up the red cup where they took Merry Christmas off on it? <laughs> well, you know, the, the dark roast that they offer now is called Christmas Blend. I don't even like dark roast, but I go in there and say, I want Christmas Blend. So I get to say the word Christmas one more time. No, their Christmas Blend is very good. Uh, Wednesday night, I preached on um, Luke chapter 1 about the Zachariah and Elizabeth's surprise baby late in their life having John, who would become the great prophet John Baptist. Uh, that same chapter has a little bit of Mary's miraculous conception of the Christ child. Today we're going to look at Luke chapter 2, which is his birth. Chapter 1 covers uh, this wonderful narrative of God bringing the Old Testament and the New Testament together through John the Baptist and uh, preparing for Jesus. In Luke chapter 2, when you read Luke, you realize he fits a position because he's meticulous about details. Uh, You can almost see in your mind if he had a dictation uh, recorder, he would be walking around like a doctor does dictation, telling all these things and for someone to uh, type it out and scribe it out. But uh, he starts off with these words. It came to pass, right? In those days. Now, that's not what most translations say. That's what the King James translation says translates it it came to pass i think others may say in those days is that what it says in those days terrible rendering of that original language because it leaves out the most important word it's not days it's the word genomai which means to become to come to be and it's such a a word that is all through the New Testament. Over 600 times you'll find this word. 132 times Luke uses that word. And why someone wants to translate it to where they miss that word, I don't know. I still like to read this narrative in the King James because it's, it's what I was used to growing up, and it's beautiful language. But in this regard, he gets it right. It came to be or it came to pass. He mentions um, Caesar Augustus, right? And he mentions Quirinius, governor of Syria. He, he throws out these historical figures because this is a real event with real people, real places, real history. And what you don't see, starting off this narrative, 
is once upon a time. That's why the opening words leaves no question that he's not giving us some kind of fuzzy hope that maybe something happened. He said, this really happened, and it happened when these people were at their post in the government, and it happened in this regard. This is a real history with real people in real places. Christmas is real. And without Christ, we would not have Christmas. So I trade greetings with happy holidays with Merry Christmas. <laughs> it's Jesus' birthday. You gotta love social media Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and they probably got other things now. I kind of hurt some people's feelings. I want to apologize to all the Star Wars people <laughs> here this morning who maybe waited outside for a few days to see that movie. I want to tell you, Luke 2 is not Star Wars. It's not Miracle on 34th Street, as great as that may be. It's not, it's a wonderful life. This is not make-believe. This is a real story. This is a narrative. Luke goes to great extent to give us all the pieces to it. And he starts off with that Caesar Augustus gives this decree, this edict, this, um, the word is dogma. It, it, it is like, this is authentic, authoritative. This is to be done throughout the entire Roman Empire. This is to call people to go to their land of residence where they came from, where their ancestors came from, and to register for a new tax roll to be made. Pompey conquered, the Roman general conquered Jerusalem after besieging it, and it was part of the Roman Empire. But as this particular man, Caesar Augustus, this was not his given name, this was given to him, this was a, a Augustus, we get the word August from, it was this venerable, this emperor worship was in full swing. He was the great nephew of Julius Caesar, and, and by this time, he and the other leaders of Rome wanted people to think of them somewhat like a deity. In fact, this is the man who built the temple to honor his great uncle, Julius Caesar, as a deity. And Quirinius, who was not governor of Syria very long, but it's exact, it's really pinpointing at this moment in history, here's a man who thinks he's a deity giving an edict that actually helps fulfill prophecy. Now, how about the irony of that? <laughs> of the one true deity. The one true deity was not living in the ornate palace in Rome. The real deity was lying in a manger in Bethlehem. There's only one deity. So here's the story picks it up that in Joseph and Mary heads to Bethlehem to fulfill the requirements of this edict, this uh, decree that uh, Caesar Augustus had given them. And they get to Bethlehem. It's a very small village. It's still a very small town. 
you know, tourism has kind of made it grow a little bit, but it was an insignificant little town. That's why it was amazing that this was David's birthplace, the great, greatest king of Israel. Here, he came from this little bitty village outside of Jerusalem. And so they get there. There's not a lot of housing opportunities, and you know how the narrative goes. So they sleep somewhere outside, maybe in a, a makeshift barn or maybe in a, in a cave. If you ever have a chance to go to Jerusalem and go to Israel, you ought to. I've been privileged to go twice. And on those occasions, there's a church of the nativity built in Bethlehem over what they believe is the cave that Jesus was born in. We tend to be so fetish. We tend to gravitate to that that's visible, don't we? You hear people about souvenirs, and and I'm almost the the worst when it comes to souvenirs. Hanging on to stuff. I got stuff boxed up. Probably should start going through it and discard it. But I I would hang on it, and and people tend to gravitate. Well, if you put something associated with Jesus that he was there, you tend to make that what? Holy, right? And it's sad to see the orthodox people that have somewhat jurisdiction over that church burning candles and kneeling around that little cave spot there in the recesses of that church praying and hoping that just because they're in a spot where maybe Jesus was born that God would give them greater favor and you want to say to them this is not what brings you into the favor of God it's an empty tomb that brings you into the favor of God And yet there it is in Bethlehem, the church of the nativity that celebrated. And you drop down to verse 6, and the birth of Jesus takes place. And while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. You know, I think pregnant women can identify with that. In the hospital, it's named for the babies that are delivered. Some of those pregnant women says, no, we were the one delivered. Are you following me? It came that she was delivered of this pregnancy. When you get to that point, I understand that there's a collective, yes, let's do this. And she brought forth her firstborn child and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. If you study the wording of that verse, clothes is not even mentioned. It's actually the verb swaddling, to swaddle. It means to wrap with strips of cloth because some of them would wrap their children with their limbs to their side But she just took regular strips of cloth and wrapped around that newborn baby and put him in a feeding trough, a stone manger. There's not more great humiliation to be born into this world than to be born in a spot that animals are kept in and to be wrapped up with strips of cloth, torn from sacks or whatever she had, and placed in a feeding trough. But that would follow Jesus, wouldn't it? 
Humiliation would follow him. It followed him all the way to the point of the cross where it says he humbled himself, right? As Paul wrote to the Philippians. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He came in humiliation. Humiliation was part of his life. But strangely, God always seemed to bring exaltation with the humiliation, right? And even the passage in Philippians says, but God has highly exalted him, the one who humbled himself, became obedient to death, even volunteering to die on the cross. God hath highly exalted him, and given him a name above every name. And that at that name, every knee will bow. That includes Mao Zedong, by the way. Vladimir Stalin. All of them. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. That Jesus Christ is Lord. And here we go. And seeing the exaltation part. Here's the baby wrapped with strips of cloth in a manger, in hay, feeding trough. And here's where the shepherds show up. It's their time in the pageantry, right? This is where they come out. Time for the shepherds to show up. Shepherds and angels are in the next portion of this scripture. That's a strange mixture, isn't it? Shepherds and angels. Not coincidental that God chose to announce the birth of the Christ child, his son, the Redeemer, to shepherds. The lowest estimate people of occupation in Israel. It says, The angel Lord appeared to them in the middle of the night, and the glory of the Lord accompanied that angel. And it says in the exact words, And the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were, here's again why I like the King James. They were sore afraid. You can be afraid, that's one thing, but when you're sore afraid, you're sore afraid. (laughs) I don't know if it really, really captures it. They They were terrified, let's put it that way. You see, when the invisible God, who cannot be seen with these eyes, reveals any much of a resemblance of who he is and of his presence, it is a terrifying moment. And the Bible actually says that while we're in this mortal state, none of us could see God as he is and still live. So he veils somewhat his presence when he does reveal himself to people. And what they saw was the night sky lit up with the glory of God, the brilliance of the glory of God. And they were sore afraid. And it wasn't even the full max. It was a veiled revelation of God. And the angel's first words to them was, how's it going, guys? How's the sheep doing? It's not what they said, was it? This is all through Scripture, especially when Jesus is raised from the dead and he appears with the disciples. Fear not. 
It's okay. And that's what the angel said to him. Fear not. A negative command. Prohibitive command. Do not be afraid. (laughs) I don't know. I find that kind of comical. (laughs) They're terrified. Don't be that way. Okay. We won't. Don't kill us. But there's a reason why the angel said in this regard, fear not. Not that he was thinking they would jump up and run, but he had a reason why he said fear not. And it's right behind this word, this command. You don't have to be afraid because what? I've, I've got a message I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. And in my mind, I'm just thinking that they're thinking, oh, great, still don't kill us. <laughs> but he's, he's communicating, this is the most glorious night in human history. You are at the point of power here at something God has waited to do for generations and you're here in the middle of it. You're about to be the first ones outside of his parents to see the new Messiah that's come. I think the angel was trying to tell them, you know, this is really, this is really good for you guys. You're going to be able to tell your children and your grandchildren and everyone in, in your lifetime this night will stand out in your minds forever and ever. And then he adds this to this message of, I bring you good tidings of great joy. And what? It gets better. It gets better for them. Maybe they're starting to calm down a little bit. Maybe they're they're catching their breath now. Okay. For unto you, you, you men out here, Tending the sheep, this lowest rung of occupation to you is born this day in the city of David, a soter, a savior. One to save you. The savior of your life has arrived today. In the city of David. You know, we, we hear these things. We watch Christmas pageantries and we kind of like just go through these statements ho-hum, don't we? We get used to it, familiar with it. But I don't think these guys ever got used to this. And then he added this. A Savior, and he specifically identifies as Christ the Lord. Now, those words had to have blown them away because Christos is the Greek rendering of Mashiach. They heard an angel say to them, your long-awaited Messiah has arrived tonight in the city of David. And this will be a sign unto you. This is your hint. 
You know these people that do these uh, clue things where they send people on clues? They only got one clue. What was it? You'll find this baby, this Savior, this Messiah, lying in a manger, wrapped in this swaddling clothes. This is your clue. And uh, what, what we don't have here, and my imagination just loves these kind of opportunities, is the conversation of these guys when they looked at this and says, let's go. Let us, this is, the, this is the rendering of the lines in the pageantry, let us now go into the city and find him. I think probably one of them looked at the other and says, let's go. I mean, the, the multitude of angels that shown up after them, that, that came with this great angel that spoke to them, and this multitude of angels showed up, and they were saying, glory to God in the highest. That's why I like this, angels we have heard a lot, gloria in excelsis deo. This is, this is the rendering in Latin of glory to God in the highest. This is the great, this is the great line that inspired Handel to write Messiah. Look at that. This musical name Messiah has this exaltation of angels. And after all of these angels disappeared, they were ready to go. Thankfully, Bethlehem was not a very big town because they... That's all they were told. But I can just hear him say, did you see what I saw? Can you believe that? Did you see? Was, did, did, was I hallucinating? No, no, it was a bunch of angels. And so they find, they go on this pursuit to find Jesus, and they find him. And around verse 16 and 17, they they're the excited group that gets the first visitation in the nursery of Messiah. And it said that they left and they spread abroad all of the things that was told to them about this child. They became the first missionaries. I wonder how long I mentioned this Wednesday night. I wonder how long these men, these shepherds, were captivated by what happened that night. I think there probably was a long-lasting effect on them. Wouldn't you think that? But in less than two years, chaos would erupt in their villages as a slaughter of male babies took place by this paranoid Herod depicted up here on one of these slides who was threatened by a baby in Bethlehem. And maybe in that crazed event that would probably also include where John Baptist was living with his parents. So maybe people did not know who survived because Mary and Joseph were already warned to get the baby and get out of town and go to Egypt. And they didn't tell anyone. 
their whereabouts. So maybe after not being able to find them for years, the wonder of these shepherds wore down a little bit because they, they lost track of him. And I, I think probably that was God's purpose, wouldn't you think? Because if they could find his address, Jesus just couldn't arrive on the scene in anonymity. But there's one point I want to conclude with, and that's this. But Mary kept all of this in her heart and pondered it. Mary ran all of these things through her mind. And through her heart, see, she was caring for Messiah. The shepherds didn't probably ever get to see him again. So it would probably be a little bit of a winding down, but every time she held him in her arms, she was looking at the face of a baby she knew was conceived by the Holy Spirit inside of her. What a wonder that must have been for her. Because I, I can hold a baby and just be amazed at a baby. Their little fingernails, everything so beautifully made, how God fashions life. But think about Mary. This is why I love Mark Lowry's great song. Mary, did you know that when you kissed your little baby, you kissed the face of God? Isn't that great? That just gives me chills when I, and when he sings it, I really get chills. Every time she held him, every time she fed him, every time she tucked him in at night, I wonder what age this child was when consciously he began to realize his real identity. We know at age 12 he knew who he was, right? But think about the Son of God being in heaven. I think Karen referenced this in class. The Son of God being in heaven, eternally existed in existence, deciding and agreeing to come down in an unconscious state in a conception. That would be months long and months in growing to a point to where mentally he began to realize his real identity. Mary pondered all of these things in her heart. And I think she was pondering that day in Cana of Galilee when they ran out of refreshments. And she walked over to Jesus and said, they're out of wine. He knew what she meant. <laughs> she, she knew he could do something. And he kind of like rebuffed her a little bit, didn't he? But then he said, well, go get some pots and fill them up with water. She knew. She always knew. She grew up knowing. She grew with that child knowing who he really was. I think Neyland in front of that cross, seeing her son so brutally beaten and brutally executed, 
and her heart crushed, I think deep inside of her, she remembered. And she pondered. And it doesn't say this. I'm taking my liberty here. I think when she saw the tomb empty, I think she smiled. And says, yeah, I knew it. I knew who he is. I knew this was not the end. And this is what I want to ask you this morning. Do you ponder and know these things in your own soul? Or has it become casual to you? Has Christmas become the holiday? Instead of one day out of 365 that we all get to celebrate his presence every day. To where we trust him with our issues and our challenges and our pain and our sorrows and do you pursue him like the shepherds I don't think God showed them exactly where he was he just gave them a sign didn't he it was almost like he said it's up to you to pursue past your questions and look at every place that might have a manger and find him and they found him have you lost some of your pursuit today of discovering him, loving him, worshiping him? Would you stand with me?